This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to the CDA Resident Podcast. Just to remind you, this is a podcast series that's really designed for dermatology residents, although I'm learning a lot by doing these as well, so I think it may be helpful to some of our colleagues in practice. You may know I'm Carrie Purdy, and I'm a dermatologist that's in practice here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, beautiful East Coast. I do part-time academic and part-time community-based. So this is one of the other topics that I selected for our first round of resident podcasts in, in order to try to get some of the questions that you have, burning questions, if you will, about uh, cosmetic injectables, uh, neuromodulators. And my special guest today is Dr. Sam Hanna. Sam, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. And, you know, interestingly, how you maybe started working uh, some cosmetics and aesthetics into your medical uh, practice. I I don't do any myself, and so I don't really have a great way to explain to the residents how you can sort of incorporate that into your practice. So hello, welcome. Tell us a bit about how you got into this business. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. I'm glad to be with you. Um, it, sure, I'm happy to tell you about that. Uh, I love that I have a blended practice. I do, as you said, uh, still a lot of medical uh, derm, uh, but I'm doing about half my time, maybe a little bit less than that, in in aesthetics now. Uh, and you know, really, it starts. Uh, it started for me, and I think for a lot of people, with uh, number one, having an interest uh, that you know, it's. I don't think it's necessarily for everyone, uh, but uh, for me, it was patients starting to ask. Uh, you know, things like botulinum toxin and fillers are uh, well covered in in media. And so patients ask about them. And as they started to uh, have a relationship with me uh, on the medical side, uh, those questions started coming up first as maybe advice. Uh, and again, for me, I had a bit of an interest uh, just because I, I like to do lots of things. I like to have a broad uh, practice. I like waking up and looking at the schedule and having a lot of things uh, that are different to do, including injectables, including laser, including medical dermatology. And it's also why, you know, I started doing a little bit of uh, clinical trials and that has built as well. So I think it's been a very natural progression. Uh, and to the residents who, who ask about how to start, um, I'll often tell them like, number one, just do what you're comfortable with. Uh, seek out as much uh, hands-on training and, and apprenticeship training as possible. Um, there's a lot of really generous members of our community that can help with that, both other dermatologists and, you know, in an uh, ethical way, uh, a lot of our industry partners will help with that as well. That's great, actually. I was going to ask you, just thinking about that, you know, um, I know residents often struggle, especially in some programs where they don't get a lot of necessarily exposure or access during residency to aesthetics. And um, how did you, did you do extra training or what kind of stuff did you do to get that exposure after residency? Or, or I guess on the flip side, did you get much exposure as a resident yourself? 
Yeah, my, I mean, my experience was I, I got almost, I don't even think it was available. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been really have been. It was been way a, too long ago. <laughs> Just kidding. It was, yes. We, <laughs> that's true. Electricity was helpful for the, <laughs> yeah, for the aesthetics. Sorry. Uh, no, I mean, I, we didn't have any, uh, really, it wasn't a, even a small part of my training. Um, and I was, I had finished and started practicing. I was in the U.S. at the time, but started practicing for several years Um and you were joking about how long ago it was, but the first filler I used was were you know Zyderm and Zyplast, like these were the old collagen fillers. Um, and the beginning really was another colleague of mine who was doing a little bit, and we started to, uh, you know, I'd watch him, he'd watch me, we'd have uh, people come in and, and chat with us, or go, you know, see with people, uh, see what other docs were doing. Um, those days were great. Zyderm and Zyplast were still, they were beautiful results, but I always say you had to make sure the patients got out of the office quickly before their results wore wore off because they didn't (laughs) last at all. But it was a nice way to cut your teeth. There were some issues, you know, uh, with those products in terms of allergy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't have any. And so for me, it was all about just those things I said, it was about, uh, finding colleagues that were doing a little bit, studying on my own and seeking out ways to, get that exposure that wasn't just theoretical or observational. That's always the hard part, right? Like you can watch somebody do that. Yeah. But to actually physically be the injector. Um, and that's where the start slow comes, you know? And I think that's something, you know, I, I think that's going to be good for the residents to hear that because I think a lot of them have concern that if they're not physically doing the injection when they're residents, that they're not going to be able to provide that service in the future. And I think, you know, this is just another, um, or this is just confirming uh, for me that, yes, they can do that. And, and it's not something that they necessarily have to be doing hands-on as residents. And, um, you know, probably a little bit better or easier to get that exposure um, when you're done in terms of having other colleagues in industry want to partner with you, I would imagine. Well, don't get me wrong. I think the ideal scenario uh, for the residents would be just like when we train them in uh, excisional surgeries or skin cancer surgeries, that they be uh, offered the opportunity to to acquire and hone those skills in a more um, supportive, form- formalized way. Um, frankly, across the country, when you look across the country, I I think there are a variety of reasons why that's difficult. I mean, uh, training, aesthetic dermatologic training really varies in how it looks from coast to coast as you go across Canada. And it's a bit, you know, left to caveat a little bit about who's there, who's interested, who has the time, who's willing to share. And that's, um, that's tough. I think that's difficult. I think it's a bit, uh, it would be really nice as a national dermatologic academic group if there were a bit of a minimum curriculum, especially since I think it's interesting. We we it's fair game on their royal college exams, the aesthetic stuff. So, um, I mean, not necessarily inject this person for me. It's it's a little more uh, <laughs> theoretical than that, but. Uh, you know, I, I think it's something to strive for. I think it's an important thing that we include and think about. That's a great idea. I'm going to take that and write it down. Now, I think this is probably a good time to go to our first resident question. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. Thanks so much for doing this. So my name is Alana McAvoy. I'm a PGY4 dermatology resident at the University of Ottawa. My question for you is that there's often stigma around doing cosmetics in the medical dermatology community. So I'm wondering if you have any strategies for a resident or even a new graduate to deal with this stigma. Thanks so much. 
That's a good question. So do you have some strategies that we could give the residents to kind of how how would they approach this or how have you approached it? I'm sure you've come across it in your in your practice. Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I mean, I would say I don't think that it's the resident's job to work around the stigma. I think that's on us as practicing dermatologists who comprise the community. Um, we are we talk a lot uh, these days, all of us, about the the encroachment of other specialties and less trained individuals creeping into the space of dermatology. And for me, I think it's very, very important that we recognize the full breadth of our specialty and own it. So even if you're not interested in doing uh, even a little cosmetics, or if you are interested in doing a little bit, or if you want to do all uh, immunologic disease, whatever your specific interest is, I think we need to recognize that dermatology is a big tent that we need to protect our borders, and this is part of it. And I, nobody is as well suited to do a good job in uh, aesthetics as dermatologists. A lot of these procedures came from us. We've honed them, we've expanded them. Nobody has as good an understanding of anatomy and physiology that's relevant to this. And so to me, uh, I think the stigma comes from people just sort of naturally liking what they do or being interested in what they do and thinking that things that are other than that are for some reason trivial uh, or frivolous. And the reality is this is a science. There's a lot of science. I'm, I'm working on uh, a discussion, a, a, a little game presentation I'm going to have with some of the residents coming up in a few weeks. And I mean, I'm going to crush them. These are hard questions. These are, they're <laughs> not, they're not going to do well. I mean, there's a lot uh, of very, very detailed science. There are ways uh, to do this with skill. These are medical procedures. You know, when we see things like some of our national pharmacy chains, for example, starting to enter mm -hmm. this uh, realm, that gives me concern. And I think part of uh, that we we have to own. We have to. We're responsible for part of that by you know not uh, defending and including and, and holding up that part of our specialty. You know what? I I agree, and I have to say, even a person that does zero cosmetics, I come across this regularly and see that fallout from people that aren't trained. So I, I take your point. I think that's really um, an important thing to, to think about. Okay, we've got another question here from residents. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Amin and I'm a dermatology resident at the University of Ottawa. And I was wondering, how do we assess the aging base to prioritize different treatment options that yield the most noticeable cosmetic results? Thanks. Thanks for that question, Amin. The residents are nudging me here to get a bit more practical. So let's think of a scenario. Let's say, you know, your average 50-year-old woman comes in, they want to uh, talk about their aging face, maybe they've got marionette lines, maybe they have a bit of sagging. You know, when you look at a patient like that, how do you approach them? How do you decide what you're going to do? How do you suggest it to them? So it's a great question. I mean, I think the the there is a real skill, first of all, in um, entering that realm. And I mean, it often starts with a very open-ended question. I never assume that somebody is or isn't going to be interested. And that's that's a lesson to learn. Um, men 
uh, older men, younger women, no matter who it is, there are people. There, there are things that people have uh, concerns about aesthetically, and so I'm open to that discussion with anybody who wants to discuss it. From that point, it's always easy when they say, "Hey, one more thing, what can you do?" But you know, I, I feel like I look tired, or I want to look more refreshed, or you know, my younger, my older sister's better looking than me. What do I do? Um, those are easy. <laughs> they give they give you the uh, that was today. My my older sister's better looking. Um, that they give you the the foray in you know that's that's the invitation in i think from that point um you still have to be cautious like patients um know what they know they will find a, a feature for example that it, that they identify that they can create language around and so they'll come in and say what you said my nasolabial fold or my these lines or my tear tra- you know whatever it is i think our job is to uh, let them sort of uh, understand the breadth of the things that are contributing. So to first to listen and understand what they're perceiving. Is it tiredness? Is it aging? Is it, you know, I don't look like the way I used to, that sort of thing. Um, and then I ask, I mean, very practically, I say, is it all right if I, uh, you know, take a look at you and let you know what I think and what the options are? And then people are generally quite uh, open to that. And then it's an important thing to go systematically and so systematically can mean a number of things. I mean, it can literally mean starting from the top uh, to the bottom. Uh, but the other way, and I think it's important, is uh, to start from, say, the superficial skin and move deep, thinking about volume defects or you know, muscle motion, things like that. Um, there are things that you, as you start to do this and get comfortable, are going to notice uh, that contribute to appearance of aging that patients don't. They just don't have the language to talk about, right. you know, uh, A-frames or preauricular creases or things like that. Um, at the same time, it's important. It's a collaboration, right? So I, when you start out, it's easy to let patients unwittingly bully you. They'll come in and say, I want this. And you'll say, oh, okay, that sounds reasonable. Let me do this. As you acquire a little skill, um, it's easier to say, you know what, that's fine. Let's think about that. Let's also think about this. These are the ways what I'm hearing is you want to get to this point. These are the ways I think we can get there. The important thing, and again, I just a, a, two hours ago in the office, I had a conversation with somebody and I, I didn't follow my own rule. She was there for a cosmetic consultation. I walked in, very nice pleasantries, and I started asking her about her lower face acne scars. And she let me get pretty far into that conversation before saying, yeah, I don't care about those. What I'm here about is my mid face, my upper face. Uh, and it was fine. I mean, it was not contentious, but it's, you know, uh, end of the day and you're, you know, let's, let's uh, get it going. Um, <laughs> so it's important to include patients assessment, uh, their, their assessment and what their goals are. Um, I'd also caution people, uh, patients will come in because they've looked online and seen a treatment. So they'll come in and ask about fractionated resurfacing or botulinum toxin or, or, or filler or whatever it is. And when they do that, I say, you know what, That's, those are all things we can talk about. Why don't we start with what bothers you before we start with the solution? Let's right. figure out what the problem is yeah. first. And that's super important, right? Because um, these are all, they're part of a palette. They're not the thing they're there for. They're, what they're there for is for your expertise and the outcome. How we get there. Uh, that's the tools. Let's say that a patient comes in and and they want something done that you just do not agree with or you don't think is going to look right or they've had too much done or they're asking for something that you feel is, you know, yeah. m- for better or worse, ridiculous. How, what do you 
how you approach that? Yeah, it it took it takes a while. It's taken a while. I mean, I think my language uh, has become fairly pat about that, and it's friendly and it's not confrontational. It's not to shame anyone, but it's to say, you know, um, I hear you. I, I hear what you're asking for. If that's really what you think you want, what I tell people is, you know, it's just not my brand. I'm I'm not good at doing that thing that you're 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 asking for. And there are people in the community that can, but if you'll allow me, I'd say that what what uh, the thing that you're asking for really is not going to create uh, a genuineness or or a natural appearance. I mean, natural is always a tough word in this scenario because the things by definition <laughs> that we're doing are unnatural. <laughs> we're using toxins and fillers. But I think when we say that, I've thought about this a lot recently. I mean, I think when we say that, what we're talking about is authenticness or genuineness. Right. You know, one yeah. of our sort of national treasures, Kent Remington taught me some time ago, uh, I ask patients to to show me or bring in a photo of themselves when they're, you know, their high school graduation picture from college. And no part of that is so that we can make them at 55 look like they did when they're 18. But it's just to show them really and, and to help me see where the transitions have been, what the evolution has been, and the, the, the sort of key touch points that we can start to re institute that create a more, again, genuine, more rested, more youthful appearance. But it isn't about making, you know, older people look younger. In individuals who want things that I struggle to find genuine, I, I have no issue with, at that point saying, you know what, it's, it's, that's okay. I'm not judging, but that's not for me. I'm not good at making that, that thing that you're asking for. Right. Yeah. And I think that's fair because you don't want people going around, you know, who did, who did that to you? Well, Dr. Hannah, you know, and looking yeah, well, a little bit that. Uh, <clears throat> less, yeah. than less than I, ideal. I mean, <laughs> so that's one of the things. Do you, do you find yourself walking around? I mean, even, I, you know, I, I find myself walking around where I'm at parties or I look at huh. people and go, oh, yeah. my God, who did that? You know, I... <laughs> Well, it's not great. Some, yes, it's hard to turn off. I do it in the subway is a fun thing or at the mall. I I spend like parties in closets and other rooms doing consults, as I'm sure you do, too. So, um, <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, and I think that point you bring up really reflects back to what we were talking about, about non-medical providers, for example. Like part of my issue with with that whole scenario is that it really uh, blurs the picture of all of the work that we do, you know? Yes, uh, so people yeah. that are less skilled or doing a paint-by-numbers approach to filler and botulinum toxins or laser, um, they it does impact. I think people come in and say, oh, I'm, I'm, you're not going to make me look like X, Y, or Z. And what they've seen really is... is uh, these, these poorly performed procedures, overdone procedures, procedures done without respect for uh, natural physical anatomy or the individual. Okay. The residents also wrote in a question. Again, it's very practical. How do you choose which type of filler you're going to use and what area of the face? Is it more what area or is it more what look you're going for? Is it more the patient type? You know, how, how do you... Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a combination of those things. I mean, I think the um, the the choice of say filler, just to talk about that, since you asked about it, um, really relates to what you're trying to achieve uh, and some other considerations. So, for example, uh, if I want to create a lift uh, in the mid cheek, so in the malar cheek mound. Typically, I'm using a product, and there are a number of them. This is not a branded issue. This is There are a number of products that have uh, a good lift, so a stiffness and resistance to deformation. Right. That's amazing when we're trying to lift a cheek. 
That's a disaster most of the time when you're trying to augment a lip. That is not a good feeling when you go to kiss your kid or your partner and it feels like you've got uh, concrete setting in your lips. That's not <laughs> that's not a thing that most people are going to uh, like. Not so um, much. Not so much. And so, you know, the, the nasolabial folds, you have a little more leeway. That's the, you know, you have to think about function as well as, as form. Um, and so that's really, that's just a matter of learning your palate, you know. In terms of training, are there ways that you can get that feeling or is it really just purely doing it a bunch of times? I, I think at the end of the day, that's going to be give you the most um, f tactile feedback, both in terms of the act of injecting and also what your endpoint is. But your endpoint really, a lot of it, most of it is your eye. Right. I mean, it isn't about I want it to feel that way. Like I want, I'm looking for uh, places where there are shadows, where there shouldn't be shadows, where there should be highlights or places where there are, you know concavities that I want to make less less concave, that kind of thing, Cont curves that are discontinuous that I want to create continuity, the relative size of facial features that you want to, you know, uh, make um, improve relative to each other. Um, however, having said that, you know, I've done over the years a few of the, say, at the American Academy of Dermatology or the American, the ASDS has a couple of courses where they'll do synthetic heads. We've done synthetic heads. Um, it's helpful. And there's, you know, there'll be sort of roving KOLs and, and experts. Um, and, you know, it's very helpful to know sort of relatively the depth of injection for different areas and what it to some extent you'll get that feel or the look through this synthetic kind of latex skin and that they're actually they're actually quite helpful okay. that kind of thing they're not terribly expensive they usually are tied into the meetings um so that's a nice way to do it and then certainly the hands-on the sort of the one-on-one -on -one or small group uh uh, sessions. We've done a few of them in the office. Uh, they're, they're pretty helpful as well because we'll, you know, I'll do a cheek and then have the person that's with me uh, do the other cheek under my direction, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll get volunteers from staff or staff families or my family and uh, they're usually pretty forgiving. <laughs> now, I'm going to be really nervous next time I see you. You're going to be looking for all the shadows and lines in my yeah. face. It's, you know, I... Yeah. You're perfect. Yeah. You're perfect. <laughs> you got to say that. Um, uh, we'll talk <laughs> offline. We'll talk offline. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, um, <laughs> you know, I guess something that has always made me somewhat wary of, of delving into aesthetics is the idea that the patients are really demanding and, um, and that you kind of get into this different type of situation. You know, is, is that sort of a uh, relationship that you have versus like the person that's coming from melanoma? Do you find that you have to modify yeah. the way that you have that relationship or like how do you navigate that as a doctor? Sure. That's a good question. I mean, I think you're right. That is a perception that people have. And it's one of the reasons that sometimes people cite for not, you know, being interested in, in uh, doing aesthetics. The truth is, first of all, that I think. I, you can talk to any dermatologist, no matter what their practice looks like, and they have they will identify patients that are demanding. I mean, that is not uh, unique to this. Yeah, I had like um, five today. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And so, you know, and I mean, and I will say that some of my most rewarding physician-patient relationships uh, and longest have been with aesthetic patients. I think all of our patients, no matter what, are looking for the same things. They're looking to be heard and they're looking to have uh, an outcome 
whether that's a medical outcome and, you know, care for their melanoma, as you said, or whether they want a respectfully done, proficiently done, safely done cosmetic procedure. Um, I think the challenge in this scenario is, you know, unapologetically that there is money involved. Uh, I, I respect that, you know, I, I, I understand that. And I'm very frank about that part of it with patients. I never, you know, uh, we, we, you've heard it a million times, but we, we really want to over, uh, you know, under promise and over deliver. Um, and realistic, I, I, I'm not interested in treating somebody once, right? Mm. To promise somebody something that I know they're not going to get and have them be disappointed, but say, well, too bad, your check cleared. That's not how I want to practice any part of what I do, right. you know? Um, and so I, I don't find necessarily that those patients are any more challenging than that, than my parigo nodularis patients. And I'll take a hundred cosmetic patients, you know, <laughs> um, I'll, I'm happy to see the parigo nodularis patients, but they're challenging. I, I, you know, um, the motivations are, are, are clear with aesthetic patients, but also, you know, it, it refers back to something you asked me before. I think that stems from this idea of stigma. If you think that this person coming in asking you to, uh, improve their, their dynamic wrinkles on their forehead is doing something frivolous. Okay, you shouldn't be doing that. That's this is not a a space for you. Switching gears a little bit, uh, could you do you know thinking about botulinum toxin and neuromodulator injections? Of course, we you mentioned it for for dynamic um, wrinkles and things like that. But what about for hyperhidrosis? Now, I don't know that I'd necessarily consider that to be quote unquote aesthetic or cosmetic, but it is a question the residents um, had, which would be to sort of review. Uh, the general management or how you would do Botox for palmer plantar or or uh, axillary hyperhidrosis. Run us through your your uh, algorithm. It is super straightforward. I mean, I think the um, especially with axillary and second tier palmer plantar hyperhidrosis is it's also easy. It's just a difficult thing for patients. So right. I cry a little as I do that <laughs> on their behalf, but I have to think a little bit about pain management. The process itself is very straightforward, though. I mean, I think let's just take the example, say, of uh, of, of axillary uh, hyperhidrosis. Number one. Um, you want to make sure that you really what you're dealing with is is a primary issue and not secondary. So, you know, think about uh, thyroid disease or, you know, pheochromocytoma, which I'm still waiting to see once. Um, I'm not really, I'm, I'm happy not to see this. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, but assuming you're talking with a pri about primary, then you want to uh, assess the extent of the issue in an individual. Sometimes, to be honest, they make it easy on you. If we turn up the temperature a couple of degrees in the summer and they'll sweat very nicely for you, you can see where that's coming from. But when I started out, I was very, very diligent every single time about doing a starch iodine test to get how you know starch everywhere it's messy but but it really shows you it's a good exercise to do to show you where the extent of their sweating is and then you can direct your injections the the technique of injection i mean people vary in how they you know reconstitute the botulinum toxin um I do it so that I can get the bulk of it in and not a super large number of injections because it is a, a bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and then I go in a sort of grid-like pattern uh, through the space that I've delineated, either with my eye or with the starch iodine test, having cleaned off the starch and iodine. Don't give people iodine tattoos. Um, and it there's a little bit of a feel, just like a lot of things, like with sclerotherapy or things like that, there's a little bit of a feel to these injections. But 
think about the anatomy of the skin, think about where those sweat glands are. I like to, in the armpits, uh, raise a little bleb with each one. If I'm injecting deep dermal, it's not, it'll probably diffuse, it'll probably be, you know, get there. But ideally, I want to see a little bleb with these micro little droplets that I'm leaving behind. Um, I, my philosophy and patients have sort of uh, confirmed this for me is that uh, moving quickly is better than moving slowly in this scenario. Uh, in patients that are particularly sensitive, um, I'll use ice preceding my injection. Right. If they're really sensitive, we can use topical lidocaine preparations or topical anesthetic preparations. Um, but I like to sort of crank through uh, the armpits. Uh, patients find it seem to find it a little more... Um, uh, comfortable that way. You can direct pain a little bit. So when you're starting out, the patient might react to an injection. It's just like when you have a little kid, when they fall, if you say, oh my God, are you okay? They're going to cry. If you just keep going, you know, they're, they're fine. They, 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 they're not feeding off of you. Um, so that's for armpits. That's, that's the scenario. I always give people an opportunity to come back if they have a specific persistent area of sweating that we didn't anticipate for touch up, that sort of thing. Right. Palms, Souls, same thing, but the pain factor increases. It's much more important to really uh, manage that for patients. So do you tend to do a, a block or, you know, I know one of my colleagues just as a, a we have, they have a couple of patients that will just sort of hold a, an ice pack for 20 minutes and just power yeah. through. What do you do for your pain control? Well, I, I don't do, I stop doing blocks. First of all, even if you think you're going to do blocks, like a sural nerve block for plantar uh, hyperhidrosis, they're really imperfect. They're painful themselves. They really create a difficulty afterwards, even if you're successful and you know patients have to hang out for a while. Um, so I do a lot of topical numbing where necessary and then ice. And I'll do pre-icing and then we have these little this little trick where we'll freeze little gauze pads in ice cube trays. And so it's like a little handle and it's a bit drippy, but you know, you can kind of lead your needle. Uh, so I'm icing the area I'm about to inject as I go. Oh, okay. Oh. It takes a little coordination, which has never been my strong suit, but you get good at it with practice. This ties into the question about hyperhidrosis. And when, uh, you know, we were leading up to this, I was, I was doing a little background. Um, I'm not sure I knew this, uh, but this also harkens back to the question about other providers providing these services. The product inserts for all of the Canadian-approved botulinum toxin products, therapeutic and cosmetic, all specifically talk about physicians. Uh, that is not necessarily what is happening in life, even in our, our colleagues' offices. And I'm not saying that that's uh, wrong, but I just thought that was interesting, you know? Absolutely. Uh, that's a really good point. And I, I don't think that patients actually think about that for the most part when they're deciding. I think sometimes they're looking more at the dollars and cents. But um, I mean, and, and you might be able to comment on this or, or not. But do you think in terms of cost, I think that's something that patients are often thinking about. Do you, do you think that there's a huge spectrum in, in cost differentiation between dermatologists provided services versus other physicians versus non-physicians? There is certainly variation even among our colleagues uh, in dermatology, there's variation when we compare ourselves to our plastic surgery colleagues. And without question, there are there are um, variations in with with non physician providers of these services. Do patients try to haggle prices with you, or has that ever happened? <laughs> oh yeah, all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, they do it with me. That's not even with staff. They do it with me all the time. Is that your best price? Is that your teacher price? Is that your whatever elder, you know, senior's price? <laughs> okay, good enough. How often do you run into adverse effects with your cosmetics patients? 
in general? And I mean, this would obviously yeah. be provider specific, but you know, how often do you see people coming back because they're having um, something more than a little bit of local pain or um, bruising yeah. or what have you? Well, and that's a, that's that's a good uh, you frame that well because I mean, if you consider you know local pain and bruising as an adverse effect, and I I always offer my patients we I do laser as well, so if they have bruising, they can come back. But that is sort of within the realm of what is expected uh, with these procedures. Um, beyond that, I mean, thankfully, the rate of of more significant complication is is rare. Um, I'll be honest that I think I have a number of physicians in my office who do do aesthetic services. And I think if you asked any of us, we see more complications coming from outside from other providers to be corrected than we do uh, from from patients that we treat ourselves. Um, and, you know, that that's a challenging thing. I think you're being asked to be involved in in the middle of something that you didn't do and correct something that you didn't do, but it's an opportunity for, I always take that as an opportunity to help and an opportunity for education. And if you, uh, you know, when you, when you help those patients, I think they, they, there's immediately a, a rapport and a trust there. Um, I think it's, it's really one of the most important things though, this idea that, uh, if you're going to do anything, I don't care what the procedure is, cosmetic, medical, um, you need to be aware of and ready to address the the uh, the unexpected. You need to expect the unexpected and be able to um, respond to it. Uh, so that's a big difference between I think us and and non derm non non core aesthetic physicians doing cosmetic uh, procedures. Um, it's something we we end up talking about a lot at meetings and things like that. And sometimes I say, oh, you know, this complications talk again, but. It's really important. It's really important, and I hope I never see it. You know, you, you hope that nothing ever happens, but it's in your back pocket. You're ready. You know the protocol in for your practice or in your office or in your institution. When X, Y, or Z happens, this is what we need to do. Um, that's what's going to distinguish us. Um, so that's that. That is a great question. You know, and I think that does apply to other things because I often say that as physicians, we're learning critical thinking and how to manage things, the art of medicine, and not it's not a one-size-fits-all, you know, and I, I know that many other healthcare providers for whatever you're doing, insert here, is more algorithmic or more, um, you know, grid-based, and, and that's just not the way that we think, and I think that that's something that's... Um, it's an intangible. You just can't, uh, you know, you can't put a price tag on that, if you will. No, it's true. I mean, I think we're good at what we're good at. And and I saw a gentleman this afternoon who came in, new patient, with a, a simple problem. He had a really big, I mean, sort of a large, small, plum-sized uh, soft fibroma or skin tag on his abdomen that his family doc is well-meaning and nice and whatever. He, he, I know him. He sent me a lot of patients. But he froze it, half of it. It was two and a half centimeters across. I mean, this thing was you known dark and necrotic on a really tiny pedicle. It took me eight and a half seconds to numb it up and remove it. And he was ecstatic. But there's a there's a finesse about doing little things and simple things that you realize it's in understanding their complexity that they become simple. And it's again, that's all in our back pockets. We understand those things really, really well, better than any other doc. I completely agree. Um, I'm going to ask you just a couple of practicality questions that I guess I think about if you're if you were just starting out in practice when you do or when you first started with aesthetics, would you set aside a day to do it a half a day? Do you just do it mixed yeah. up with all the different things that you do? How do you divide your week? It is nice to be honest to have dedicated aesthetic time. 
especially in Canada, medical dermatology practices are busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it is a bit of a challenge for uh, aesthetic patients um, to sort of to sit in the waiting room. So if you have a separate area that that can be nice, that's not available for everyone. But, you know, when it looks like a train station waiting area, that's a little tougher for, for aesthetic patients. Um, but at this point, there are certain things like botulinum toxin injections I will happily fit into my days. They're, they're quick and easy. Um, one of the things that uh, just as an offshoot of that is my aesthetic practice, my cosmetic practice has actually sort of driven how I treat my medical practice a little bit in the sense that I really try hard because I know the mix of my patients. I really try hard and I always tried hard, but I do better now at staying on time. But I think starting out, it's ideal to set aside a little time. And at the beginning, if those cosmetic slots don't fill, great. That's time to, you know, look at some videos uh, in terms of training or read uh, something or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But if you don't create the space for it, it won't organically happen, really. You can sort of fiddle with it later and fit it in, but set aside some time. And it doesn't have to be, you know, every afternoon. Pick a half day. I would recommend Fridays. Those are good days for, uh, you know, for aesthetic patients. If there's a little bruising or swelling or things like that to have the weekend. And if they don't fill, guess what? You're finished early on a Friday. <laughs> I was thinking then they'd be gone for the weekend and couldn't bother you till Monday. But you were thinking more for, for their own appearance. So you were being a better doctor than me. It's a great comment. However, I will tell you another thing you haven't asked me about. When I give cosmetic patients ways to reach me, especially first time, ways to reach me. Because again, if there are going to be things that happen, some of which need to be addressed right away, they need to be able to contact me. Fair. Yep. No, that that is a question that I should have asked you. So thank you for bringing that up. I really want to thank you. Um, genuinely thank you for taking this time and, and chatting with me. And again, um, like when I spoke about wound care, I, I'm picking up little things that I, I think are, are really um, interesting things to think about and uh, and things that I'm learning. And, and I really hope that that also is something that the residents can take away some some uh, learning points. But, you know, I, I really do appreciate your time. I know you're busy. And uh, it's been great chatting with you. Everybody's busy. No, I appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity. I think uh, I just say to the residents that I'm I'm happy if any of them have any questions and want to reach out for them to do that. Uh, and I'm I'm happy to talk. And if they have some time to come into the office, we'd also be happy to have them as well. Amazing. Thanks for chatting with me. And uh, we'll we'll see you soon. I'm sure. I hope so. Thanks so much. Dr. Sam Hanna is a dermatologist practicing in Toronto, Ontario. That's it for another episode of Dermalogs. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like to ask, or if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like us to cover, let us know. Call toll-free at 1-877-337-6564. That's right, 1-877-DERMLOG. On our next episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Sandy Scott-Nicky, who's also based in Toronto, about some hot topics in contact dermatitis. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. Thanks so much for listening.